Welcome to the Food Web, a program about ecological agriculture, food justice, and how innovative farmers, policymakers, and food entrepreneurs are revitalizing the food system from seed to fork. My name is Artie Mangan, and I'm the director of the Bioneers Restorative Food Systems Program. I sat down at the EcoFarm Conference to talk about regenerative agriculture with Will Allen, the great organic farming pioneer. Will is a leader in regenerative agriculture both internationally as well as locally in his home state of Vermont. Regenerative agriculture holds promise to help farmers face the challenges of extreme and erratic weather and also as a tool to mitigate climate change. We're trying to get farmers to adopt practices that will sequester carbon. And currently, the practices that we have in agriculture in this country are the opposite of regeneration because we grow a four-month crop, corn, cotton, soy, canola. All those crops are four-month crops, sugar beets, all four-month crops, right? And for the rest of the eight months of the year, that land lays bare. We don't put a cover crop on it, and we don't double crop it for the most part, right? And so what happens is there's only a four-month period of the year where any photosynthesis taking place, and photosynthesis is what pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, right? And so, the more land you have covered, the more photosynthesis that is going to take place, and you're going to be sucking carbon out of the air all the time. We have so many places that are degraded that don't have to be degraded. You know, in the Savory Institute, by putting animals on the land in a well-organized grazing pattern, you can actually bring streams back. You can sequester more carbon. And we found the same thing. We're working on that on vegetables. In Vermont, we're doing no-till. And so we do all these trials on no-till, and we think that there's a lot of potential. And we're doing no-till, minimum-till, kind of like the same way Stone Barns does it. They plant their uh, wheel rows in, in clover and then leave those as permanent beds they don't plow or disc or harrow for seven years. It's all just cultivation. Very, very shallow cultivation like this deep. The other thing we found out is that the more you cultivate, the more you plow, the more you disc, the more you harrow, the more carbon you're going to lose, going right up into the atmosphere and into the ocean. So what we're trying to do is get farmers, one, to use cover crops. We're working with NRCS to do that. NRCS administers the uh, Conservation Reserve Program. And NRCS feels that the Conservation Reserve Program is the most successful program ever, right? Because they took highly erodible land and fixed a lot of it. Well, a lot of that got taken out of the program and put back into corn when the price of corn went way up. But they still did repair a lot of land, right? And they feel that they can be a real factor in increasing carbon. A lot of it is cover crops, right rotations, cut down on the plowing, you know, create more perennial pastures, create more, you know, no-till and minimum-till systems for vegetables and and even the commodity crops, right? And so on our farm, we're testing carbon at 40 centimeters and 60 centimeters every three years on 16 different plots on the land. It's expensive, but it's like, okay, we've got to have a baseline. We've got to know what's there before you can improve it. Or before maybe your management practices degrade it. That's what we're working on right now. And, like, what we see is that those 
pieces of land that have three and four percentage organic matter, even the, on light soils, you know, those soils are more uh, resilient. Resilient in what way? Resilient in that they hold water. They also, so they resist drought. So let's say we have a month in Vermont where it doesn't rain, which is rare. Usually it rains a couple times a week, right? Thing is, so you want the ground to be resilient. The other thing is, is that the tilth of the ground changes. That tilth makes an enormous difference in terms of how the ground is workable or not workable. That becomes dramatically different. And the other thing is, is that if you have 4% organic matter, you have about 104 units of N. Every time you suck carbon out of the atmosphere with photosynthesis, you're feeding all those microorganisms and the roots and the earthworms, and it does start accumulating. That's what we're starting to see. I mean, because this guy Peter Donovan and D.D. Piercehouse are doing these studies all over the country. Oklahoma State just hired him to teach people how to do carbon samples in Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma's nice. doing it, nice. it's got to be like, wait a minute, mm. this must mean something, yeah, right? Because great. people are figuring, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is a way farmers can get out of their crisis. Maybe they can get carbon credits. Yeah. You know, they were never able for carbon credits during the proposed cap-and-trade thing that, you know, was in Congress. In California now, farmers are going to be able exactly. to do that. Yeah. Exactly. That, I think that... You know, other states are starting to see, oh, we better get a baseline so we know what we got. What have you seen now in results, as particularly at that, that deeper level? At the deepest level, at 60, both Didi and, and Peter think that that is sequestered carbon. Once you get down to 60 centimeters, 60 centimeters that, that's pretty probably going to be pretty stable. You know, we have light ground. We're on the riverbank of the Connecticut River. Yeah. We all know that clay soils are much more fertile, right? And you can increase your organic matter dramatically on clay soils versus sandy loamy soils, right? But they were impressed with the fact that even in these sandy loamy soils, there is a significant amount of carbon at that level. Now, what's going to be interesting is next year will be the third year. So we'll test Which is actually a very short period of time for this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we think that it probably should be tested every five years. We're part of this group of people that are trying to figure this out from not just the ideological point of view, but a scientific, scientific point of view. Right. What is really going on here and how should we do it? That's why we actually just promoted one of our long-term employees to um, research and development director because we realized that like, if we don't figure some of this stuff out, we're in trouble because we feel like if you, can't, if you don't fix ag... It emits so many greenhouse gases. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be able to deal with. It. You know the basic premise of the Marine Carbon Project. They laid compost over pasture land, and then started to do the deep testing with UC Berkeley and, and others, right? And found that not only did they get a short-term carbon sequestration benefit, but their projections are saying that 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 has kick-started the soil food web basically to have long-term. They just had one application of this long-term carbon sequestration. So all organic farmers using compost. So, I mean, just the fact that one application had a, a much more dramatic effect than even those folks who did it expected. Everybody's trying a bunch of different stuff. Our argument is that we're doing too much tillage. You know, you've got to have cover crops yeah. on it all yeah. the time. I mean, as much as you can. Once I finished my last cultivation of beans, I went in and seeded it with clover. 
right? Did the same thing with sunflowers. Because we're trying to look about how can we do some of the tillage that we're already doing, but then you replace more of the of the carbon, right, by having the whole area covered with plants, right? Right. And then the other uh, idea behind it was is like once you harvest the sunflowers or beans or corn, you've got a cover crop, right? You don't have to plant it and you can drive on it. So that's the other thing we're trying to play with. And like the, the other part about regeneration is we feel that if you can fix agriculture, you fix social justice, you fix environmental injustice, water pollution, soil pollution, yeah, all yeah, air pollution, yeah. all this stuff, right? You take care of high chemical use. You actually uh, make farmers more solvent, right? Like, so what we're, what we're doing is like seeing regeneration as more than just organic agriculture. The organic agriculture we had before was like organic 1.0. The organic agriculture that we want is 3.0. This is like it's time, it's a social, cultural mix, right, that's all part of that regeneration thing. And then the other thing is taking that argument to businesses and to government, right? Mm -hmm. So what we've done in Vermont is, you know, we've always realized that if you can, can analyze the data that exists, you have a whole huge lever. And so Vermont is one of those states that pesticide use reports and fertilizer use reports. We were in the last stages of the labeling uh, GMO labeling throw, and the dairy folks asked to testify one last time. And so Margaret Lagas, who uh, works for Monsanto, and uh, Jane Clifford, who works for the Dairy Farmers of America, which is a huge controlling co-op with mm-hmm. Dean Foods, right? Yeah. So they came in and testified, and Jane Clifford said, we're the state that has adopted GMOs the most. 96% of all the corn grown in Vermont is GMO. Since we started using GMOs, I have to tell you, it's just a wonderful thing for farmers and for the environment. We've dramatically reduced pesticides. We've dramatically reduced fertilizers. We've way reduced phosphorus fertilizer. And we stopped using the most toxic chemicals. I'm sitting there, I said, I've read all of Chuck Benbrook's stuff and... None of that's true. None of this seems (laughs) like it's real. What do you... This is a fantasy, right? So... Once I analyzed the data, I called up my friend Chris Miller at Ben and Jerry's, and I said, Chris, you need to set up a meeting with your folks, and I'll show you guys a PowerPoint that I think is going to knock your socks off, really. And so I went and showed them the PowerPoint and said, this is a real problem. And not just that, you have real serious labor issues, right? Because this group called Migrant Justice is, you know, on their back. Get them to change, right? And I said, you have incredible water pollution problems. And so let me come and show you this PowerPoint. So I went and showed it to him, and they said, geez, it's incredible. Kind of blown away. And then they said, well, look, we'll get back to you. And so a week went by, and then two weeks went by, and a month went by. And this was in August when I showed it to him of 2014. Finally in January of 2015, they called me and said, well, you know, we've talk to our growers and they don't want to change you know they're happy with what they're doing and we have a 35 year relationship with them and we want to respect that relationship because we feel it keeps them in business so then i said well i'm going to show this to the secretary of agriculture right so i went and showed it to me he said where'd you get this data and i said it's your data Those are delicious moments. (laughs) And he said, well, would you give me a copy? Better yet. (laughs) Just give him the website. (laughs) So then, um, you know, then we got lucky because 
when I was working on sustainable cotton, we had made this long-term connection with Patagonia, and we had talked Patagonia into switching yeah. over. And a uh, residue of that is that when we had our first Regeneration International meeting in Costa Rica, one of the vice presidents of Patagonia, Rick Ridgway, came to that meeting in Costa Rica, right? And there were like 62 people from 22 countries, so it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And people from Russia and people from Africa and all over Asia. And So anyway, he came there and we started talking about this Ben and Jerry's thing. He said, you know, I'm on the policy advisory board for Unilever. And he said, so is Fred Kirschman. I'll bet you he'd be interested in hearing about this. So when I got back home, I sent him a copy of the paper. And then, you know, he was in that terrible kayak accident where Doug Tompkins died. You know, that totally knocked him off of his pillar. He almost died. And then at Doug's memorial, I saw Rick again. And he said, you know, well, I'm really sorry. I haven't done anything that I promised you I'd do. And I said... Rick, you just lost one of your best friends. Just don't worry about it. Just So we were talking and hugging. And then about three weeks later, he called me up. He said, I got in touch with the CEO, and um, I think they're going to be giving you a call. And so like in, I'd say, late April or early May, Ben and Jerry said, well, two of our vice presidents would like to come down and meet you at your farm and talk about some of the work that you've been doing because our CEO said we ought to begin talks with you. So we started talking, and then we promoted all this stuff because we said, look, farmers are going bankrupt. Two of your farmers have gone out, right? They're among the most profitable because they're big, right? And they can endure more because they get more subsidies. But you're losing farmers, and Vermont is losing a lot of farmers. We're down to 870 farmers, and in 1970, we had 11,000. And we said the price of milk is in the toilet, and we're seeing a major crash in the dairy industry worldwide because there's too much milk and people aren't drinking as much you know only a third of the people a third of the people in the country don't even like milk you know and so we just presented all this to him and then we said the other thing is like you're saying oh well we'll help some of these farmers by giving them these i mean a pittance amount that they were going to give people for doing the right thing and i said that's not going to save them these guys are going to go bankrupt and then we told them look we will bring in technicians that you can talk to and we found out from the chapter 12 bankruptcy court which is a reorganization bankruptcy provision right that came out of the farm bill in 1986 it was made permanent in 2005 and and there's a section in vermont that runs that the trustees of that run it in vermont and they have told all the conventional dairy people we can't reorganize your loans because we can't see on the horizon where dairy is going to be profitable right But we are giving reorganization loans to those farmers who can get an organic contract because they can pencil out, because they knew what the price of milk is for uh, organic. So anyway, we took all this stuff to Ben & Jerry's, and we're still a struggle with them. And then we got really lucky because the former Secretary of Agriculture in Vermont, not the one that we had criticized, but the one just before him that was actually in a Republican administration and He's a Republican. He wrote an article in the a newspaper, the Addison Independent, which is right in one of the biggest dairy counties in the state. And he said, look, Vermont has to look at a change in its milk system. And he suggested, why doesn't Vermont uh, follow Denmark's lead and 
get on a program to go organic. Then he asked us if we'd be in a coalition with him because he knew that we had raised this alarm. These are the kinds of things that we think can be really regenerative. How do you change a system? It takes years to do this stuff. You know, I hope I live to see us do it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But if we don't start, we'll never get to the end. Something like Ben and Jerry's, that can make a major difference. That would be huge. And that's what we tell them. Look, right now you guys are greenwashing. And yeah. people, more and more people know it. And, like, yeah. if you say, okay, we're going to go non-GMO, that means nothing. Come on. You're still using all the same chemicals. Yeah, right. And then we started looking at all of dairy. And the last paper we just published was in the alternate, and it's in there this week. Mm. You, under the food section. It was a lead article last week, but this week it's still way up there. Mm-hmm. It's about dairy cow burnout. Mm. You know, and what we found is, and that's what we're doing, is just peeling back this bad onion called dairy yeah. in this country, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Right? It's horrible. And so then, you know, we found out that, well, like the cows only are sent to the slaughterhouse or to the feedlot before they're five years old. Right? They're only getting 2.4 lactations out of them, right? And 10% of the cows are dying in the first two years. 1% of them are dying of depression. And the other thing we found out is that dairy cows comprise the almost the bulk of the beef in the market. Oh, is that right? The, the 57% come from the dairy industry. Come from the dairy. And even only, only 22% of the cows are dairy, but they're just burning them out. You know, we have a whole ad campaign mocked up to take to Ben and Jerry's and to Cabot Cheese because Cabot's our other target, right? And cause both of those, man. And then Vermont could be a shining example. Could be a shining. Let's, yeah. let's do this right. You know, yeah. you had to change before. See, like Vermont changed... When the sheep industry went west and then to, to New Zealand, Vermont was a big sheep provider. And so what they had to do is they switched to cows for butter. They were the butter supplier for the Boston and New York markets, that area. And, and then when they got refrigerated trucks, they said, oh, we can do liquid milk and ice cream and all this other stuff, right? And then they converted that. So our argument is, look, Vermont's already gone through a bunch of changes, and they did it in response to bad markets. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what we have right now. This is a bad market. Why is the state continuing to spend money on a loser yeah. dairy system, right? Yeah. You know, why is the federal government? We can't control the federal government, but we can give Vermont, the state yeah. people a lot of shit. We can fix this. You know, we can fix this. Every bite of food you eat has an impact on this. Every garden you grow has an impact. Who you buy your food from has an impact. How your food gets to you has an impact, right? We don't have to be observers. We should be participants in this because it's about all of us. Check back again for future Food Web podcasts about the challenges, triumphs, and innovations of developing a food system that nourishes people and the planet.